start yet, um, although crazy things happen, but relatively speaking, it's not high drama. And so we're going to learn three things that we need to know about what does it feel like and you know, what's the lived experience about for people who follow Jesus. And so we'll see three main things uh, in these two chapters. First, we'll see the silence of God. Second, we'll see the position of God's people, the position that God's people are always in. And then number three, the truth underneath appearances. Okay, so first, the silence of God. Number two, the position of God's people. And then number three, the truth underneath appearances. There's a lot that happens, but th- these are the three main things that, that we need to see in this section. Okay, so first, number one, the silence of God. So in verse one through nine, you could say the curtain lifts to a scene that is loud and colorful. Okay, so it is a buzzing party. It's 180 days long. Okay, so this is King Xerxes throwing a party for his empire. Imagine a party that spans from January to July. Okay, that some of you are like, yeah, uh, college. Okay, let's talk afterward. Um, Okay, but it's about six months long. And Persian kings, they knew that to, you know, decrease the risk of their subjects rebelling, they would throw them parties. So it's pretty smart. And so it's this loud party. And what these first nine verses emphasize is that the empire is visibly impressive. So see verse four. While he, that Xerxes, showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. And so if you're here, which was many people, okay, you're walking on marble floors. You're drinking out of golden chalices. Okay, it's visibly extraordinary. And there's lots of not PG-rated activities taking place. But in addition to the pleasures being grand, you could say, uh, the size of the empire is also visibly impressive. And so if you could please bring up the map. So this is the empire of Persia in the known world at the time. So it essentially covers all of the known world with the exception of this little holdout of the Greeks over there on the west. And so if you're alive in 480 BC, I mean, the Persian empire is what you know. Everything is affected by it. So think beginning of episode four in Star Wars, the empire, okay, affects everything. That's what this is like if you're alive today, okay? And so at the top of all of this, the the visible impressiveness, the massive size of the empire, on top of all of this is King Xerxes. So his palace was hundreds of feet over the city. So when you look up into the heavens and you ask, who is God? The answer is Xerxes, okay? If you ask somebody, who gives you pleasure and security? The answer is Xerxes. Who's the most powerful man on the planet? The answer is Xerxes. Notice who is not visible. Who you don't see. It's God. And one of the unique things about the book of Esther is God doesn't show up once in the entire book. You don't hear a peep from God. There is no explicit prayer to God. You don't even hear about the believers, Esther, Mordecai, the Jewish people, even saying they believe in God. So contra to Xerxes, God is the most visibly unimpressive figure in this entire story. And this is why Esther is so helpful, because it gives acknowledgement to what the world often feels like. And so an illustration I got from a pastor named A.J. Thomas who's in our network and his sermon on this passage was very helpful to me as I was preparing this. He says, you know, imagine if you're part of God's covenant people back in Persia 
and you're talking to a Persian and you say, you know, I believe in God. He is my security. He is the one who takes care of me. A Persian would probably say something like, that's great that you believe that. You're welcome to believe that. But I believe in Xerxes. I don't see your God. I can see Xerxes. And in fact, you know, it seems like my God gives me way more pleasure and security than your God gives you. And I think for many of you, you know, can you not say this may be similar to conversations that you've had with people who, who don't follow God, who don't know God? You know, you may be trying to explain your faith to them that you believe in God, and they may say something to the effect of, that's great that you believe that. You're welcome to believe that. But I'm doing just fine. You know, I, I got plenty of money. I have a partner. You know, what, what does God have relevance for to me. And in addition to this, throughout Esther, God's people are in trouble. So we're going to see in the coming weeks, they're facing genocide. That's a dangerous predicament. And normally when God's people are in trouble, he shows up in a real God way. You know, so Red Sea parting, pillar of fire. Here, you never hear God speak. And, I mean, I wish this didn't strike so true to home as I was thinking about this week in my own life. I mean, how often does this not feel, I don't know, maybe it doesn't for you, but at least for me, there have been so many times where when you are in desperate need or you really want something, does it ever seem like God's not there? Does he care? Or maybe on a lesser level, just is he simply not as inspiring? as, you know, dangling objects in your career or when it comes to love partners or a family. And so what Esther helps us with is just the lived experience of being God's people is that God often feels silent. And we often ask God, you know, if you cared about me, wouldn't you give me the family that I wanted? If you cared about me, wouldn't you alleviate the physical suffering of this loved one that they're going through? Why aren't you answering my prayers? God, do you even hear me? I can't see you. I can't hear you. It's like, am I just believing in a fiction? And we're not going to answer that tension yet because the narrator wants us to sit in this okay so that this is the first thing that Esther wants to show us is that often the lived experience of knowing the Lord is that he's silent and he's not very visibly impressive compared to many things going on around you and so that's number one the the silence of God It'll get better. Don't worry, but okay, we, we need to acknowledge that, feel it. Okay, that's what I love about our Lord, how he comes alongside us in this way. So number two, what's the next thing we need to see is we need to see, we need to see the position of God's people. The position of God's people. So uh, a little bit of history, more history to orient us. So because you have to ask, how did God's people, how did Esther end up in the citadel, one of the capitals of Persia? Okay, how did that happen? And brief history in 586 BC, uh, the Israelites, they were living in Jerusalem, and you had the head honcho of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, who led Babylon. Babylon comes in, they destroy the temple, they destroy Jerusalem, they bring out, they, they take the Israelites captive, take them into exile in Babylon. Okay, then 539 BC, 
new head honcho on the world stage, Cyrus, king of Persia. He comes in, okay, he defeats Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So now Persia is the main player, and so now Persia is overseeing the Israelites, okay, where Babylon left them. And in 538 BC, roughly, Cyrus issues a decree, and he says, hey, those of you who are the people of God, if you feel like it, you're welcome to go back to Jerusalem, and you can begin rebuilding your city and rebuilding your temple. This is one way that the Persians just kept their subjects happy. And some Israelites decided to go back to Jerusalem. Other Israelites decided to stay. And Esther is in the line of those who chose to stay. So that's why she's in the epicenter of the Persian Empire right here. Just hopefully that's helpful, especially for those of you who love history. I know it's a number of you in here. Okay, that's how, that's how Esther ends up here. Okay, so she's an orphan, we're told. Um, her cousin Mordecai, who's a civil servant, is taking care of her. Esther's probably a teenager. Mordecai's probably in his 20s, maybe 30s. And here's how, here's what happens to Esther. So in chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, you see the king, he gets drunk at the end of the six-month party. He's probably been drunk, but he gets drunk again. And he calls for his wife Vashti to come before him and his inner circle. And it says he wants to parade her before everyone wearing her crown. Uh, it's probably more accurate to say wearing only her crown. Okay, this, is the, this is the environment that we're in. And Vashti says no. Okay, surprise. Okay, she says no. The king gets furious. We'll come back to that. So then fast forward to chapter 2, a uh, timeline that is probably about four years later uh, than the Vashti incident is at the beginning of chapter 2. The king is now queenless because he has deposed Vashti. And so he and his council, they come up with this plan. They say, okay, because the king doesn't have a queen that doesn't look good, let's summon all the most beautiful virgins in the empire to come before the king, and the woman who most pleases the king will become queen. Okay, they'll be put into the harem. Come see the king if they please him. They, can, they have a chance of becoming queen. And let's just call it for what it is. Um, okay, this is not an innocent, you know, Miss Persia competition. Uh, this, is a, this is a sex contest. And for the women, this is a high-stakes situation because for most of them, okay, they, they get in bed with the king, and then they're sent back to the harem, and they'll probably have to stay there, and they're consigned to permanent widowhood. Because if the king touched a woman, she wouldn't ever be allowed to touch another man. Some commentators, scholars speculate maybe it's because the king had such a fragile ego. He didn't want to be compared to other men that that woman is in you know, bed with in the future. And you think, wow, this is really sexist. And, and it is. You know, I mean, it, it's horrible. But also, the empire was an equal opportunist when it came to exploitation. Okay, and actually, actually, a female commentator pointed out it may have been worse to be a man in the empire because many of them were brought in, castrated, and then kept as eunuchs, okay, overseeing the harem. Okay, this is just power exploitation everywhere. So this edict goes out. Esther is one of the girls who gets taken in. And long story short, she wows the king. He's pleased with her, and he makes her king. Okay, so we're summarizing a lot in a little bit of time. Now, our instinct here is to start moralizing, okay, to separate the good people from the bad people. So bad people, Xerxes, Persians, good people, Esther, Mordecai, Jews. But notice the narrator never gives a moral evaluation on the characters' movements, were they good or bad, and that's because moralizing their actions isn't the point. And you see why it's not the point, because as soon as you try 
to make a dividing line between good people and bad people, it gets complicated really quickly. Okay, so Esther, she was a victim. She was taken. But on the other hand, she is a free agent. And once she's there in the harem, I mean, she goes all in. And she plays the game really well. And, you know, she follows what the eunuch says. She pleases the king. She keeps her identity secret. You see that in verse 10 of chapter 2. So you're like, okay, well, Esther, that's already a number of God's commands you violated. Okay, sex outside of marriage. And then she's going to marry a pagan king, uh, keeping her identity private. And then Mordecai, okay, why didn't, he protect, uh, why didn't he protect Esther? Knowing she was going to a place where it was unlikely she would see the light of day again, why didn't he do anything to stop it? In fact, you get the impression that he, he encourages her and he tells her, like, what connections to make to do this thing well. And so the point here isn't to say, be like Esther. Okay, although later in the book, it will be more explicit, be like Esther. But as of now, I mean, do you want your daughter to emulate Esther in this way? And here's the point. What the author is trying to show us are two things. First, the author wants the people of God to know the kind of world we always have to live in. Because Xerxes and the empire, they represent the world's value systems. It was the same then, it's the same today. You think, oh wow, man, back then, isn't that horrible when men were given status based on power and wealth and women were given status based on their sex appeal? Glad it's not like that today. It's the same. Okay, the world values power and influence, external success, short-term pleasure, And so if you are a follower of Jesus, I think here's the first point is it's just it's profoundly steadying to know that God's people have always been on the margins. And so if you follow Jesus today, there will be a large part of you where your identity almost feels like your intention between the world's values and and the values of Jesus. I know many of you work in jobs, you know, where where the people around you, their values are very different from the values of Jesus. And the world isn't as evil as it could be. There's so much good in people who don't know the Lord, but there will be many times where, as one person put it, the world will, a- will ask you to be a concubine of the culture, as it were, okay, and compromise in order to be well-liked. And so that's the first thing, is just coming to terms with the fact that God's people are always going to be on the margins, always going to be vulnerable. It's just helpful to know that. And so rather than saying, I wish things were different, just we need to learn how to live faithfully where God has put us and to love others well who don't know Jesus while also not compromising our identity as God's people. That's the first thing the author wants to see in terms of the position of God's people. And the second thing he wants to see, and I love this, okay, because so progressives and conservatives, they, they love to debate and argue, you know, over Esther's motives, okay, did she do this because she loved being desired by a powerful man? Did she do this because she was afraid? Did she do this because, um, because she was so wounded from losing her parents and losing her homeland? But her motives don't matter. What God wants to show us here is it's not her motives that matter. What matters is that God chooses to use her and he delights to use her. And so the point here is God loves to use people, whether you are hardened in rebellion toward God or have been, 
whether you feel weak, whether you feel inadequate, whether your heart feels crushed by wounds. God does not just call these special and virtuous people to bring his presence to others. He loves to call anybody. He does call anybody. And so for those of you who may be feeling like, well, I'm too inadequate to be used by God, I'm like this Christian I know. Esther dispels that. Okay, we'll see how we go along, how God loves to bring Esther out of where she is to use her for his purposes. That's the second thing we see, the position of God's people living on the margins and also being used by God, regardless of of our flaws or weaknesses. Okay, and then number three, what do we need to see? We need to see the truth beneath appearances. The truth beneath appearances. So, Look at this series of foibles. So, first what happens is the king calls Vashti forward, right, to parade before the men in his council, and she refuses. So, Xerxes prides himself on being the most powerful man in the empire, and probably why he asked her to come and not just forced her to come is because he wanted to demonstrate that he could manipulate even people's wills. He didn't need to tie up someone and bring them in. He could just ask her to come, and she would come. She doesn't come. Okay, so the most powerful man in the known world can't even get his wife to do what he wants him to do. That's the first thing. And then next, see in verse 13. So after this happens, he says to the wise man who knew the times, and then verse 15, you know, what are we going to do according to the law? What should be done? And what we're going to see throughout Esther is this powerful, visibly impressive man never once makes a decision for himself. He always has to ask someone else, what should I do? Let's keep going. Number three, what's the next foible? So verse 16, what do the counselors suggest and what does the king go through with? They say, okay, Vashti didn't come before you. Let's punish her by no longer allowing her to come before the king. Wait a minute. Vashti doesn't want to come before the king And your punishment is, you're no longer allowed to come before the king. It's like sending a kid to their room for time out when their favorite video games and television are in their bedroom. (laughs) It's not actually a punishment. Number four, what's what's their end master plan? They say, okay, if other women in the empire find out what Vashti's done, they're not gonna do whatever their husbands tell us to do. And so what you see here now is the greatest crisis to the world's most powerful empire isn't an isn't a enemy nation. It's not a famine. It's housewives within their own empire. And what's their solution? They don't want other women to find out what Vashti did because then they might do the same thing. So they send out an edict telling every single person in the empire what happened and then telling all the women, you need to obey your husbands no matter what they tell you to do. Are you starting to get the impression that maybe the emperor has no clothes? Are you starting to get the impression that the one who looks so visibly impressive and powerful maybe can't follow through on anything he wants to do or any promises he makes to his people? And that's always been true of the world. Okay, the world's promises never deliver. And what Esther 1 and 2 wants us to see is maybe... There's a more real king. Maybe there's a more competent ruler on the throne of the world, even though he's not visible. 
And yes, does God sometimes show up in spectacular blockbuster ways where he parts the Red Sea and sends down pillars of fire? Yes, he does, but more often, God is so humble that he chooses to operate in silence and moving history according to the counsel of his will with his silent hand in order to bless his people, even allowing us to chalk things up to coincidence. As we go through Esther, we'll see so many things just so happen. It just so happens that the king gets drunk and calls for his wife on a whim. It just so happens, she says, no. It just so happens the girl who gets called into the harem and most pleases the king is one of God's people. It just so happens that Mordecai overhears a plot to overthrow the king and he falls into the king's graces. It just so happens that Esther is able to end up manipulating this king because he thinks she's so powerless. It just so happens, and we'll see eventually, Esther and Mordecai save their people from genocide. And so one of the main takeaways in Esther 1 and 2 and the book of Esther as, as a whole is God's silence does not mean God's absence. Okay? His hiddenness doesn't mean his abandonment. In fact, often it may be when you feel him the least or seem to hear him the least that he's most with you and always working all things according to his good purposes for those who love him. And so we want to become attuned, to, especially in a, you know, a secular world where everything is about the visibly impressive, just becoming more aware and comforted, knowing that God hasn't left us even when we don't hear him. And the biggest proof of this is because about five centuries later, okay, when the great empire of Persia was in the dustbin of history, and I say Ahasuerus, and you say, Who? a new empire rises up called Rome and it's just as visibly impressive and there's an impressive emperor named Caesar and into this empire is born a baby into an unimpressive family in an underprivileged part of the empire. And Jesus is, he is the fulfillment of the hidden presence of God. Okay, because on the one hand, I mean, Jesus, he is God made visible. He is walking on the earth. Okay, you can see him, you can touch him. He performs miracles, but yet he's hidden. No one can get it. And eventually everyone hates him, and you know they do because they kill him and crucify him. And it's particularly at that moment where you see the juxtaposition between how the world defines power and success and how God defines power and success. Because here you have the most powerful empire in the world crucifying a seemingly helpless man as he cries out, my God, my God, where are you? I don't see you. I don't hear you. But it's in this act of seeming helplessness that it's true power and true love because by Jesus experiencing the silence of God, he breaks the power of death itself in order to bring you into his kingdom. And so Esther chapter 1 and 2 are screaming the question, is there a king better or more powerful than Xerxes? And the rest of Esther and the rest of the Bible 
answers that question with, yes, there is. And we have him in Jesus. And unlike Xerxes, he doesn't exploit his bride by stripping her. But he becomes stripped to clothe you with splendor. He becomes shamed in order to honor you. And then he invites you to a feast that's way longer than 180 days, where each meal and each song is better than the one that came before. And until that day, yes, God may feel silent, and the things of the world may feel inspiring and impressive, but they can never deliver on their promises, and it's only Christ who can, and you know he is with you because of what he's done and what he continues to do. And one day, you will see him and touch him and feast with him in full. And so we live as his people until that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, I thank you for a book like Esther that is so disturbing in so many ways, uh, but yet how you are communicating to us that uh, you want us to have a place we can go uh, to know what it's like and what to do and how to feel and respond when you feel absent. And so wherever people are at uh, in this room today, Lord, whether they're looking for you for the first time or they feel like they're in a great time of relationship with you or they're wondering, are you even there anymore or do you care? I pray that you will meet them, Lord, by your spirit through the power of your word and your community uh, caring for one another in this church. And I pray that you'll teach us and even more than that, change our lives as we wait uh, for that great and final day when we get to see you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.